0: Let me ask you this, IBC family, what comes to your mind when you think about God? What images come to your mind when you think about who God is, really? Perhaps all of us in here are coming up with some kind of version, some image perhaps, some understanding, some maybe even emotional response when I ask such a question, but what comes to your mind? A.W. Tozer says this. He says, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. In fact, he goes on to say this. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Let me say that again. We tend by our, the secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. In other words, how you view yourself, how you relate to others, how you perceive the, the future, how you go about praying, how you confess your sin, how you view sin how you pursue God in general, all these are mentally rooted in your perception of God. And here's the deal. We're all off. At least to some degree. Every single one of us in this room right now has a somewhat distorted perspective of God. Most of us, obviously, have a certain version of God, not necessarily always based on what Scripture reveals, but many of us in here probably have a perception of God, a mental image of God that is kind of a conglomeration of of different resources, right? Some of us have an image of God because of what our parents instilled into us, because maybe we grew up in a Christian home. Some of us have a certain image of God or a certain aspect about God because of what we have been taught by our friends or peers, or by what other teachers have kind of passed on to us, some of us have a certain perception of God based on the movies we've watched and the blogs that we love to read so readily. The fact is, all these things influence and shape our perception of God. And even if you have no idea of God, even if you don't, nothing comes to mind when you think about who God is. Even that uncertainty, in and of itself, influences your life. Every aspect of your being when I was a young Christian growing up in a very godly Christian home obviously as I look back in hindsight I'm very grateful for the home life that I had not because I chose it but by God's grace he allowed me the opportunity to have a loving father and a loving mother who both love the Lord and have siblings who also love the Lord who also are all attending church and participating in some capacity I'm very grateful for that But even though the context in which I grew up in was good and you might even determine or conclude as very healthy, the fact is my perception of God was radically distorted. You see, as a young Christian growing up in a Christian home, my perspective of God was this, God loves me for what I do, not for who I am. God loves me for what I do, not necessarily for who I am. Therefore, because of my distorted view and because I thought God loved me for my performance or what I could do on my own terms by my own strength and by my own willpower... Therefore, this translated into various aspects of life. It translated into how it influenced my relationships with other people. It influenced my decisions as I made in life. It it, it influenced how I responded to certain situations. Every aspect of my life was influenced or tainted by a distorted understanding of God, that he loved me for what I do, not for who I was. So, for example, I was very much, and maybe you can relate to this, I very much was t- uh, influenced by pharisaical tendencies. In other words, I was a legalist through and through. I was a rule follower. And what I thought, or at least my understanding was this, if I follow the rules, then God loves me, right? He loves me more, at least. If I do the right thing, God will love me more. Obviously, the reverse is also true, right? If I don't do the right thing, then God won't love me as much. I will be less acceptable to him. And as this translated into my relationships, obviously the the pressure to perform, even though I I understood, I, I believe that God accepted me for what I do, as this related to everybody else, I also believed and struggled to believe that people loved me Or accepted me for who I was. Instead, I believed, no, people accept me for what I can do. People like me because I'm the best at whatever. And this especially translated in academics and sports. In other words, I, in my mind, in my distorted thinking, had to believe this idea that people will like me and people will accept me if I'm the best at whatever. And therefore, especially in regards to academics, I must get straight A's. Of course, my parents always wanted me to get A's, but then that translated in life going, "Wait, if I don't get A's, I'm less acceptable. I'm less loved." So now all of a sudden it wasn't about the it wasn't about the joy of learning. It was all about don't screw up. Get A's or be a loser. And so getting straight A's was the name of the game. It had nothing to do with what I loved to learn, what I liked in general. It had everything to do with make sure that report card is the best. Make sure your GPA is top notch. And if I didn't get a grade that met my expectations, I was devastated. As this translated into sports as well. Obviously, I've, I've shared this before. I wrestled at a, such a young age and kind of grew up wrestling, and so uh, that was kind of something that I, you know, I actually started loving to do. Uh, however, as the competition grows, as you go to more and more tournaments, as I as this distorted thinking about God and relationships grew and manifested itself, I realized, or I, I felt compelled and motivated in this way. It was no longer about a love for wrestling. It was all about I have to win, and if I don't win. Again, I go back to loser category. I go back to loser class. And so therefore, I have to win. This is why it was so devastating. This is almost ironic, in fact, when you think about it. My first match of my middle school career, I lost. And my first match of my high school career, I lost. Devastated. Because I've been so successful leading right up to that point. Everybody's like, oh, you're going to do amazing. And I lose my first match. And it's like, wow, who am I now? What do I have to offer now? What do people think about me now? The fact is I was constantly on stage and there was no room for failure. And as you can imagine, that is a very miserable way to live. the opposite may actually be true of you as well. Perhaps you may not struggle with legalism and performance with God and also with one another, but maybe like the video we just watched, we see that you see God as a sort of cosmic vending machine who's there basically to make your life happy, who's basically God's sole purpose is to go, how can I cater to you? I'll get to this passage in a moment, Jeremiah 29. We oftentimes Take that verse or that passage and use it kind of in a self-serving sort of way. But regardless of our perception, regardless if we, we feel compelled out of legalism, out of uh, "God has only loves me for what I do," or you're just going, "You know what? I don't even care what God thinks." Ultimately, he should be catering to my life, making my life happy. In the end, we have a distorted view of God. We are all off. Even Paul himself says this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but soon in eternity face to face. Now I, now I know in part, but then I, shall, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So I believe that you and I have an opportunity here. I believe that you and I have an opportunity to embark on one of the most important journeys of life. And that journey is this. It is a wholehearted pursuit of God. It is a, an intentional, proactive pursuit of God that acknowledges that there's no other greater goal or aim in life. It's really an invitation of a lifetime. By the way, I do want to point this out to you. In your bulletins, there are some notes. And if you're wondering, going, what is all this extra stuff in the bulletin today? Some of that is actually for your reading pleasure. Some of it is actually so you can take notes even now. And so I would encourage you, if, if you grab your bulletin, pull out the notes, as a two, kind of two-page front, or a single-page front and back all throughout, and uh, I want to encourage you to take notes, because part of what we are doing here is that we are hoping that we are all engaging in the same conversation, and so if you, don't have, if you don't have a bulletin, you should just raise your hand right now, and the ushers would love to throw something in that hand, so don't feel shy, just raise it up, say, I didn't want it before, but now I love it now, it's okay, just grab it. I want to encourage you to take these notes because, again, as we do so, you and I are embarking, we're setting out on the most important journey of a lifetime. But in order to do that, we must kind of lay the foundation. We must set the ground rules, so to speak. In other words, in our pursuit of God, there are a couple of key things that you need to know. You need to understand very clearly because if you ignore some Essential ground rules, you will not know God fully. You will not know Him as He reveals Himself. And the first ground rule is this God is not like you. Shocking, I know. God is not like you. Now obviously most of us in here, I would hope, maybe, hopefully all of us in here would agree with that statement. Of course God is not like me, but I would be willing to bet that some of us believe that statement wrongly. We agree with that statement wrongly. What I mean by that is this, we might say, yes, I know God is not like me, but in in a sense what we do is we actually think that God is just a better version of me. We think that, well, I know that God is perfect, I'm not perfect, but I'm probably a close second, and therefore, since God is God, obviously, he's just kind of like just the slightly better version, the slightly untainted version of me, and this rule that God is is not like us is seeking to establish that God is nothing like you. Now, of course, we've been created in the image of God. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. Of course, God has made us into his likeness. We understand that. But we must also understand that there is a stark contrast between us as his creation and God as, his, as our creator. Listen to what Isaiah 40 says. This is God speaking. He says, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Ask the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? Who brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each one by its name? Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. O Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is an everlasting God the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. Or listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11 when he says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs, it, needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. You mean the very fact that God is a holy God automatically sets him apart from all of God's creation. The fact that God is holy and perfect and that we are not radically sets him apart from all his creation. In other words, he's not just a better version of us. He's in a totally different class altogether. So even though we might say, yes, I know God is not like me or "God God is not like you, on the other hand, you must understand that you are radically different. He is creator God and you are his creation. He is Lord over all, and you are not. But you see, what we tend to do oftentimes, even though we might say, I know that God is not like me, we still seek to adopt, we still seek to shape a God that is somewhat manageable or somewhat uh, controllable. This brings us to our, our second point here. The second rule, ground rule, you and I must understand is this. Left to ourselves we tend to reduce God to manageable terms. Left to ourselves, and I appreciate what uh, Rob Craven said earlier and stuff. Obviously, I mean, he said it well. It's like people are talking about God, but they're talking about a God in their own making. And left to ourselves, we reduce God to manageable terms. The fact is how common it is for people, even Christians, to reduce God to a God we can control, to a God that we can tame, to a God that we can manipulate. Paul says even in Romans chapter 1 of this this whole approach to God, he says, yes, they, the the lost and dying world, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. You recall back in Exodus chapter 32, right? Obviously you probably don't, but I'm going to tell you. In Exodus chapter 32, we have the people of Israel sitting at the base kind of a, of a mountain, and Moses is somewhere up on the mountain, somewhere, having some interaction with God, and everybody's like, what in the world are we doing? We've been sitting here forever. Are we going to be moving or what? This cloud keeps staying. The pillar of fire doesn't move. What is going on? Now, they've already experienced prior to this that God did this miraculous intervention and delivered them from the land of Egypt, Right? We had ten different plagues. Obviously people are going, on. Obviously, our God has shown up. He's delivered us. We're giving praise. Then they start complaining again because they're stuck at the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is coming. God, again, delivers them in a very radical way, parts the seas. They cross on dry land. He destroys the Egyptian army. He's leading them by a pillar of fire at night. He's leading them by a cloud by day. God is on the move, and they are his people, and he is taking care of them. And now they're at the base of this mountain going, Where's God? You know what? I haven't seen Moses in a while. and He's our leader and he could be dead for all we know. Aaron, I got a great idea. Let's make a statue. And we'll call it God and we'll worship it. And so Aaron, again, I'm not sure what mind frame he was in, obviously, but he says, okay. And he says, give me all your gold earrings. Give me all your precious jewels. He melts it all down and creates a golden calf. And he says, here is your God. And they worship him in the most debaucherous and adulterous way. Perhaps you and I might ask this question. How can the people of Israel be so dumb. How can they be so forgetful? How can the people of Israel act in such a ridiculous sort of way? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, you and I are no different. We may not be putting little golden figurines on our fireplace mantle. We may not be making a Golden calf, but you and I are just as susceptible to false worship to false idols. We could probably do a whole series on all kinds of false idols, and we won't right now. But there I think there are two common idols that you and I are all susceptible to. You and I that you and I are all very vulnerable to perhaps even struggling with right now. I believe the first idol that is very common to all people, especially in a Western context, is this. It is the idol of happiness or self-fulfillment. The idol of happiness or self-fulfillment is a very commonplace idol that you and I always, that we will struggle with constantly, especially, especially in a blessed Western context in a sense where we have everything afforded to us. When we adopt this idol or when we pursue this, this form of worship, we begin to think that if we are obedient or if we are religiously active, if we are really an all-around good person, then, of course, God will bless me. In fact, we might even believe this about God. Because I am good, God owes blessing to me. God must bless my life. He must give me what I want. In other words, the reason why we're good is not because it's good in and of itself, it's not because it's the right thing to do. We're good because, therefore, we are manipulating God. We are good because God now owes me. We're, in a sense, we're blackmailing God. And so our motivation, what drives us in this life is I will go to church, I'll actively participate, I'll be involved in various capacities perhaps, and basically in the end, therefore God owes it to me. In a Christian circle, we might even call this Christian karma. By the way, that's an oxymoron, so please don't believe that's a, a good thing. It's Christian karma in the sense that God will somehow bless me or owes me blessing if I do good, good will come back to me in return. And yes, on one hand, we do see in Scripture that we do reap what we sow. And yes, there is great joy in one's obedience, but we must understand that we are not immune to the fallenness of this world. Just because you seek to live a righteous life, just because you seek to pursue God wholeheartedly, just because, in fact, you are filled with the spirit of Christ does not mean that you are immune to bad things. This does not make you someone who won't be vulnerable to disease and cancer. It does not mean that you won't f- experience a loved one, perhaps even a child, who will die in a freak accident. It does not mean that you won't experience some of the most difficult things in your life. I think Ecclesiastes made that crystal clear. You can live a righteous life and yet still die young. And someone can live a a wicked life and for some reason they seem to prosper. How do you make sense of that? Let me ask you this. How do you make sense of Christians who are today, right now, experiencing great persecution for doing the right thing, for not rejecting God, for not walking away, even if it means their very life. Here's the deal. If happiness or self-fulfillment are your ultimate goals in life, then I believe you will always be left wanting. If happiness or self-fulfillment are your ultimate goals or aims in life, you will always be left wanting because you will never be satisfied. You will never ultimately be fulfilled. You will always feel like you're not quite complete because only God and his very presence in your life can offer and provide that sense of satisfaction and completeness. You see, the greatest, one of the greatest deceptions in this world, one of the greatest things that we're vulnerable to as human beings and because we have an enemy and because we have a weak fallen flesh and because we live in a fallen world is the fact that we look to anything else other than God to give us what only God can give. And we think, begin to think that, oh, I'll be happy if, oh, I'll be more happy if I have this, if I gain this, if I acquire that, if I only can earn this. And God is saying, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. This is a spiritual frame of mind. I believe a second idol that we are very vulnerable to is not just the idol of happiness or self-fulfillment but I believe the second idol is this. It is the idol of you. What I mean by that is this. We often, it's very closely related to the first idol, but this is the idol of of living kind of a self-serving life. And what we, specifically how this translates or how this manifests itself is in multiple ways, but specifically what I want to point out today is this. The idol of you ultimately kind of takes this, uh, uh, kind of a la carte approach to life, this a la carte approach to, to truth and, and morality. Chip Ingram calls this the salad bar approach to Christianity. And in this approach, basically what we do is we kind of go, well, I like this and I like this and I like this aspect of, tr- of truth and I like this aspect of truth and therefore, in the end, this is my religion. In the end, this is my God, the God of my own making. And therefore, what we do in the turn is we go, well, I like this aspects of the Bible. I like these aspects about Jesus. I don't like this other aspect about his teaching, so I'll disregard that. And therefore, we have our own self-made, man-made religion. It's very convenient, isn't it? I recall working on the, when I was working on the pipeline, one of my coworkers who was a professing believer, and there were not many believers, so I was just excited that someone was a believer that we could have some sort of conversation with. As we got to know each other and work together, I realized that she also had a salad bar approach to Christianity. In other words, I like the fact that I get to go to heaven when I die. I like the fact that God can, if he so chooses, will bless my life and give me success in this life. I don't like the fact that I can't sleep with my boyfriend, so therefore I disregard that altogether. I don't like the fact that I have to actually uh, to pursue Christ and, and uphold this kind of standard of righteousness, and so I kind of disregard that as well. In other words, her whole approach to God was, God, I like certain aspects, God, I don't like other aspects, so I'll disregard the ones I don't like, I'll adopt the ones I do like, and that is my religion. And as I said, this is very convenient in our culture today. It's very convenient in our lives to kind of basically pick and choose what you think is right and what you think is not right. And the irony, especially for us Christians who profess belief in Jesus Christ, who profess that God is God and there is no other, the irony is this. We can know right doctrine. We can know accurate and correct theology and yet live a life that is contrary to what we profess. In other words... You can acknowledge, for example, that life is all about God and his glory. But the question is, does your life reflect a life that is all about God and his glory? Do you live in such a way, are you motivated in such a way that God, isn't true, that God is in fact all there is? And my greatest joy and my greatest satisfaction and my greatest fulfillment is all about living for the glory of his name. We might know that's the right answer, but the question is, do you believe it? Is it reflective? Is it indicative of your life? God is not like us. Left to ourselves, we tend to reduce God to manageable terms. The third rule is this. God can only be known as he reveals himself to us. That's the third rule. God can only be known to us, be known as he reveals himself to us. In fact, we see how God actually, we see that he reveals himself in a number of different ways. He reveals himself through nature. He reveals himself through his word called the Bible. He reveals himself ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. Specifically in nature, we see that Psalm 19 says this, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter one. He says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. So even though, as Rob Craven mentions, there are many people that are self-proclaimed atheists, believing that there is no God, or at best, they manufacture a God in their making, we see ultimately that God reveals himself in nature. It's almost kind of, kind of slams in the face of evolution that just basically says, what a fortunate accident. No, God is very much involved. Not only is he the initiator of all that is, but he is the sustainer of all that is. We also see that God reveals himself through his word. Peter says this in 2nd Peter chapter 1. He says knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but instead men spoke from God as they were carried along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when we read the Bible, when we approach the Bible, we must understand and we've said this before and I'm going to say it again. Because sometimes we need to hear it a thousand times before it sinks in. We must understand that this Bible is not one of many resources. It's not one of many books that we should consult for our life and for our happiness and for our fulfillment. No, these are the very words of God. When you read the Bible, God speaks. No other book has that claim or validation. No other book can make such an authoritative claim. When the words are spoken, when they are read, the Spirit takes the divine word of God, penetrates our hearts, and God speaks very clearly. God reveals himself through his word. He reveals himself so that we might know him as he really is. I think even more than that however ultimately we see that God reveals himself through his son Jesus Christ. God reveals himself through his son Jesus Christ and there's many passages we could turn to but especially in Hebrews chapter 1 in the very beginning he says this long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets and now in these final days he has spoken to us through his son God promised everything to the sun as an inheritance, and through the sun he created the universe. The sun radiates God's glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. And when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of, mag- of the majestic God in heaven. Elsewhere we see Paul says in Colossians 2, for in Christ Christ lives all the fullness of God and a human body. The point I'm making is this. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know him for who he really is, then look no further than Jesus himself. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to have a, an accurate mental image, as Tozer says, of God, then look no further than Jesus himself, the author, the perfecter of your faith. We see that he is the visible image of the invisible God. Many people go, I don't, I like Jesus, but I don't really like God, as if they were totally separate It's a kind of a a thinking that is, is is divided. But the fact is, when you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. Jesus Himself even encourages the disciples in that way. So, what must you and I do to see the real God? What must you and I do to see God as he really is? How can we, how can we actually put this in practice? How can we actually uh, see him as he really is? Well, this is where I love what Jeremiah 29 says. Now, if you read Jeremiah 29 in context, you realize that the people of Israel are actually enduring punishment for the rebellion. God is, is disciplining his people because of their rebellion, but he also, in, in the same breath, promises to restore That's the context of which Jeremiah 29 is written. So therefore God says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. By the way, I love this. God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Not I know the plans you have for you. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. And in those days when you pray, I will listen. And if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. As I said before, sometimes we can adopt a passage such as this, and and we love the part about a future and a hope. And we should be. We should be very encouraged. We should be very motivated out of a future and a hope. However, we must read this in its proper context. We must understand that it's not about whatever hope and future that I can manufacture in and of myself. It's about the future and a hope that God sets before me. In other words, God is my future and is my hope. And he even promises this. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. What this passage of scripture is telling us today is this. We must pursue God wholeheartedly. We must pursue God with every aspect of our being. The way in which you know God as he really is, is by pursuing him with every aspect of your being. In other words, there can't be a passive indifference toward this. You can't do this Every once in a while, what this communicates to us is this. It is an everyday, all day long, consistent way of life. The pursuit of God and seeking after him wholeheartedly is just something that you do every single day. It's what you embody. It is who you are. And in so doing, according to scripture, you see that God says, you will find me if you search for me in this way. you could almost read into this text and go on, well, if I don't search for God wholeheartedly, then perhaps I will not find him or I will not know him or understand him as he really is. But let's make this even more practical. It's one thing to understand that we must seek God. But the question is, how do we do it? How do you and I seek God? How how, how can you and I seek God in a way that really helps us know him? And this really brings us to our passage of scripture even this morning. Proverbs chapter 2. If you you have your Bibles, please turn to Proverbs chapter 2. I want to encourage you to read along with me. I'm going to read it again. It's a short passage, a profound passage. Proverbs chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Solomon says this, "My son, if you receive my words, and if you treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as you, as if for like a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, and then you will find the knowledge" of God. Solomon, very practical. Proverbs extremely practical. How can I know God? How can I even seek after him so that I might know him more fully as he really is? He tells us right here. First of all, we see that you seek God through his word. It's kind of a redundant message of what I just said earlier, but you seek God through his word. Verse one says, my son, if you receive my words and you treasure up my commandments with you, then ultimately what we see is that you will see God. I also appreciate the way in which, the the manner in which we are to seek God. It's not just the fact that we go through the motions. It's not just the fact that we actually put this into practice, but this is the way in which we are supposed to do it. Verse four, we see if you seek it like silver and you search for it as a hidden treasure. Let me ask you this. If, if, just for the sake of illustration, if I were to tell you, and this is all for those who live on like a city lot so you don't have acreage necessary to think of, but in your little backyard, your little plot of grass, if I were to tell you one foot below the surface, there was a million dollars and you have three days to find it or it's gone. Let me ask you this. Would you have a lawn to mow in three days? <laughs> I highly doubt it. I think you'd be tearing up your yard in a, in a hurry. In fact, you might even be leaving now if you actually believe me. You'd be like, enough said. I'm going to go check out my yard right now. I don't even like the grass anyways. And you dig it all up. Why would you do that? Oh, because you're under the impression, you actually have this belief that there's a million dollars. I don't know where it's at, but I'm going to dig until I find it. Not I'm going to dig and maybe I'll get to it, or you know what, I'm gonna get some coffee now. No, you're probably gonna work yourself to utter exhaustion just to find it. That is the way, that is the manner that Solomon is speaking here. He says, God is inviting you to seek him in this way as a hidden treasure, as one of the the most valuable thing that you could ever imagine. In other words, all of a sudden, your priorities are all shaped and different now. All of a sudden, we actually go, you know what, I don't even care about the yard anymore. I want this treasure. And in the same way, spiritually speaking, God is saying, search for me in this way, and I promise you, you will find me. And when you find me, there will be joy everlasting. We also see not only that we seek, we seek God by being, by being in his word, but we seek God by being teachable. Verse 2 says, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. In other words, what Solomon is saying is, he said, don't come to scripture, don't come to the truths of God as if you already know what he's about to say. How often can you and I relate this understanding or this fact that sometimes you've read the same passage of scripture for like a thousand times, and yet it takes a thousand times for it finally to sink in. You're like, all of a sudden you have that epiphany, that aha moment. The light bulb turns on and you're like, I've memorized this. I've understood this. How how did I miss this all along? I've related this before, but when I was in Campus Crusade, we would go out and we'd be sharing the four spiritual laws. And of course, I adopted my own version of that. And I'm sharing it, and I'm sharing it, and I'm sharing it, and I'm sharing it. And all of a sudden, it just kind of like dawned on me. It like threw me back in my seat, and I said, Oh, <laughs> this is the gospel. So, yes, I was able to regurgitate it. And finally, the Spirit shed light on it not because I didn't believe it before, not because I didn't have some degree of understanding, but God drove it home that much deeper. The roots went a little deeper. And in the same way, Solomon is saying, don't approach this word as if you already know it. Don't approach life and don't approach me as if you already know what's going on and you have enough, but be teachable. Be ready to listen. Be ready to receive what God has for you. Thirdly and finally, you seek God through passionate prayer. Verse three says, yes, if you call out for insight and you raise your voice for understanding, then we see that ultimately you will understand the fear of God, verse five, and you will find the knowledge of God. You know, it's interesting to me, church family, how commonplace this is and it is to have this perspective that man why is my life so miserable why am I so joyless right now why am I so dissatisfied in life why am I struggling so much and 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 honestly I'll ask many times like, are you in the word nope do you pray I don't like to well hmm are you seeking God? Not really. Well, surprise, surprise. Things aren't really going well. Now, I don't mean that facetiously. I don't, I don't mean that in a demeaning way at all. Because I, knew, I do know we have a weak flesh and a formidable enemy that seeks to distract us with everything under the sun from prioritizing the most important things. That is the spoken word of God. God. And crying out to him in dependent, passionate prayer. But as we are promised in this passage of Proverbs. If we search for God through his word, if we come with a teachable heart, if we search for him as if it's the greatest treasure in the world, if we are doing this through, through passionate prayer and depend, dependency on him, God promises this, you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. In other words, you will know him as he is. You will begin to put on your 2020 vision glasses. You'll begin to see him as he reveals himself. The fact is and there's in the back of your notes there there's kind of a little evaluation for you to fill out you can do it now you can do it later you can process it more later but the point is this be honest you're not getting a grade no one's looking at your answers this is between you and God but one thing we do understand is this those who really know God have great energy for God Those who really know God have great thoughts about God. Those who really know God have a great boldness for God. And those who really know God have great contentment in God. The question for you is do these descriptions describe your life? Do they describe you? I truly believe that there's no greater purpose in life than to understand and to know God as he reveals himself. I believe that there's no greater joy than pursuing God as he really is. In fact, this is why the Son of Christ, God incarnate, came to earth in the beginning. He came to give us life, John 10.10 says, and to have it abundantly. He came to give us life and to experience it fully. The fact that left to ourselves, we are are dead and lost and hopeless in our sin, but because of our great and glorious Savior, we have life abundantly offered.